The Bible reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 25. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can open those to Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one on the P-Rack in front of you. And in that copy, we're on page 23. Again, Genesis 25, starting in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Would you join me in reading? These are the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah became his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birth birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Well, if we're a little bit familiar with the story of Jacob, I'm guessing we've already got our conclusions about this fella, haven't we? We know what Jacob's really like. I mean, if we grew up in church and we did the Sunday school stories, or if we've read Genesis before, we know this guy, that's right. He's a conniving, manipulative little deceiver. We've got that guy sussed. We know Jacob. He's in it for number one. He's fleecing everyone else around him so that he can meet his own interests. We know all about Jacob. We know where this is headed. We know about him. Or do we? So we think. Now, many of us have grown up, perhaps, hearing the stories about Jacob. Many of us have read Genesis before, and some of us might be vaguely uh, familiar with this story. And we've had the idea that this guy is a deceiver. He's a manipulative kind of guy. He connives, he hides, he gets in the way. That's who Jacob is. Well, the aim of this series, looking at the life of Jacob, it's to ask the question afresh, are we really reading the life of Jacob properly? What if we were to revisit this story, story with fresh eyes, to read this and say, hang on a second, who is this Jacob character? 
What kind of situations does he find himself in? What kind of relationships does he find himself in? Who is this Jacob character? The aim of this series is to start from this Sunday morning, take us right up towards Christmas, looking at Jacob's life, step by step, pit stop by pit stop, and asking ourselves at each pit stop, what do we learn from his life that can teach us about what it means to be a normal human being, confronted with the chaos, the mess, and the mayhem of normal human life, but also confronted with the goodness the kindness, and the mercy of God. You see, what we find in the life of Jacob is something that we're, we're often used to. It's that collision point, that crossroads, that intersection of the mayhem that human beings bring, but the mercy that God lavishes upon us. Now, if you were following along in the reading just a few moments ago, you would have understood and heard and read this first seen in the life of Jacob. And we're introduced to him and his birth, and immediately what we find is conflict. And it's not just any old conflict, it's a conflict that is in the home. It's a conflict that leads to a dysfunctional family situation. It's a conflict that leads to pressure in the relationships under one roof. But it's a particular kind of dysfunction that's at play in this family home. It seems as though the parents, and one in particular, is playing favorites. It seems like the problem in this home is favoritism. Now, it's okay to have favorite things and favorite places. I have my favorite restaurant in town. Given the choice, I'm going to go straight to gastronomy on Abbeygate Street, and I'm going to get the breakfast hash. Great bang for your buck right there. You get loads of food, and you don't need anything to eat afterwards. And it's good, good food. That's my favorite restaurant. Why? Because of what it gives me. My favorite season is summer. Why do I like summer? Because I like sunshine. I like summer because of what it gives me. Maybe you have a favorite season, a favorite restaurant, a favorite place, a favorite fruit, a favorite place to visit on your day off. I don't know, but we have favorites, don't we? Because of what that thing, that place offers us. That's how favorites work. We like it, we go there, we do that, we eat that. That's our favorite because of what it gives us. Now what happens when you take that logic and bring it into the realm of human relationships? Well, it moves from having favorites into favoritism. Because then you start saying, I like that person, I want to be around that person, I'll give my attention to that person because of what they offer me. Having favorite places and favorite things is fine, but when we bring it into the realm of human relationships, well, it begins to hurt people. So so as we work our way through this passage, I want to ask the question, what's the big deal about favoritism? How does it hurt this family? What does favoritism do to the home? Why is favoritism so destructive? What's the big deal about favoritism? So what we're going to do is we're going to split this passage up into four parts this morning. We're going to look at the backdrop. We're, kind of, uh, we're, we're thinking about the drama of what's going on. So we want to look at the backdrop, the, 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 the historical backdrop behind this story. We want to set the scene. Uh, we want to meet the two key characters in this. And then it's going to be lights, camera, action to see the tension just explode in this family's 
household. So let's reread the first couple of verses right here in chapter 25, verse 19 and verse 20. And it goes like this. These, interesting, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So a lot of tough words to try and read in there, but really simply, what we find here is the introduction of two of the key characters in here. We've got Isaac and Rebekah. But this whole passage starts with this curious refrain, these are the generations of. Now that's quite significant within the book of Genesis, because that appears, I think, about 10 times in Genesis. These are the generations of. And this is the phrase that's used to organize Genesis. So you can read throughout Genesis, these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Abraham. And we just read, these are the generations of Isaac. So Genesis is going to organize itself with that refrain. But you've got to ask the question, why? Why does Genesis organize itself? And why does this story, this life of Jacob, begin with that, these, that, that phrase, these are the generations of? Why does it start with that? Well, we're going to have to step back a little bit, not just to look at Genesis, but to look at the entire Old Testament. Because if you were to open page one, chapter one of Genesis, right the beginning of the Bible, you would see this phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you could keep reading down through this beautiful, poetic creation account, and you will find God being intimately involved in the creation of all things. And God looks at it all and he says, this is good, but it's not quite done yet. I'm going to create people. And so he creates humanity in his image to have a relationship with him. Human beings set apart from the rest of creation. God looks at them and says, yes, this is very good. And so the intention in creation was for these human beings to have a perfect relationship with one another and a perfect relationship with God. And God says to them, all this is yours, everything I've created. You see the abundance. This all belongs to you. Take care of it. Look after it. Steward this. The only thing you can't do is go to that tree. But we know this beautiful creation honeymoon stage doesn't last for very long, does it? Because by chapter 3, we're reading about the consequences of sin. And it's exactly what humanity does. They, they have this abundance, but they don't focus on the abundance. They focus on what they don't have. They hone in on the one thing they can't have. Obsessed by this, they go for it, they eat it, and then experience the consequences of what God said would happen. And in these consequences, we read about some pretty dire things humanity has brought upon itself and the world. But in the middle of these consequences, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read about this hope that God introduces. One day I'm going to send a descendant. One, one day I'm going to send someone who's going to be a savior. One day I'm going to send someone who's going to crush the head of the evil one. One day there is a descendant. Somebody is coming to make amends for what you have done. Somebody is going to come. So there's your hope. Hold out for that descendant. Hence why Genesis is so keen to say, these are the generations of. They're following. Who is the descendant who's going to come? Let's follow the family tree. Let's follow the line of descendants. These 
are the generations of. Now we get introduced to Isaac and Rebekah, and then the story begins. So we've set the backdrop, now let's set the scene. Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, these are the Lord's words to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. Here's the alarming bit. The older shall serve the younger. So let's set the scene right here. What have we got going on? We've got this couple struggling with one of the most heart-wrenching things a couple could ever go through. They're struggling with infertility. But what we have right here is we don't have Isaac saying, I'm going to take this issue into my own hands. See you later, Rebecca. Not like his dad Abraham did. We don't find him saying, it's your fault, it's your problem, you're the screw-up in this household, it's, this is your... No, what do we find him doing? He's praying for his wife. That's one of the few good things Isaac seems to do right here. He prays for his wife. And the Lord hears his prayer, he answers his prayer, and then Rebecca has, as she conceives. But she knows there's struggling that's going on. So she asks the question, what's the significance of this? Does this struggle inside of me mean anything? Should it point me to something? So she goes to inquire of the Lord. Usually that means going to a prophet. But she receives word from the Lord. Right, you've got two individuals in your womb. These are the heads of two groups of people. They are divided. There will be, here we go, read this, there will be one stronger than the other. Okay, fine, but look at the alarming bit. The older shall serve the younger. Now, at this stage in history, that's not how it worked. The older did not serve the younger. The oldest one was given the primary place in the family. That's the one who got the most of the inheritance. The older one was the one who was honored, given most authority in family decisions. It's the older one who would be the patriarch in years to come. But what we read right here is something a little bit counterintuitive. It would have been disconcerting to hear. The older shall serve the younger. But that's the word of the Lord she hears. So let's start to see how this unfolds a little bit more. Let's meet the characters, the next step. Let's meet the characters. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were complete, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So that's 20 years this couple endured of not having children. Isaac was 40 when they got married, 60 when they had their children. So two twins at this point. And we're told the circumstances of their birth. One comes out red and hairy. Sometimes in my mind I think, what well, was he... Is he properly red? I mean, did he, did he have like a skin pigment problem? Was he literally covered in hair? I think it's just a way of describing the differences between the two. I know I was born a little bit hairy. Mum said I was a hairy little monkey when I was a kid. So, so maybe 
Maybe he was a little bit like me, just kind of had like a fine fuzz all over him and a slightly uh, ready pigment to his skin. So they, so they look at Esau and say, right, okay, we'll call him Harry. Esau, that's what he's going to be called. But then what about, what about Jacob? Because about Jacob, he says, right, he's holding, he's holding his brother's heel. He's the next one out, and he's holding his brother's heel. Now, I've got a little, bit, a little number one next to the name Jacob, where that is written in my Bible. You might have two, and it gives you a subscript. And it says this, Jacob means he takes by the heel or he cheats. Now, that's a helpful-ish little subscript, but it's a little bit narrow. Because the way you can understand this word heel, or the name heel, is, is much, much broader than that. Actually, there's a broader understanding of Jacob's name. It doesn't necessarily mean he deceives. Now, let me try and illustrate this, this, this idea that names, though it's, though it's this one word, can have different understandings or connotations to it. Let's imagine, for example, I'm going to take Peter. Let, let's, say, let's say, right, Peter, um, your name in Greek means rock, right? Uh, in, in Aramaic, it, it's Cephas. Greek, it's Petros. His, main, his name means rock. Now, imagine if I show up one Sunday morning and I say, right, everyone, we're not going to call him Peter anymore. We're going to call him rock. From now on, we're all going to call him rock. Now, I could give you alternative reasons to that. I could say, right, we're going to call him rock because he's, he's faithful, he's reliable, he's incredibly steady, and he's the kind of guy you could lean on whenever you need. All of these things are true, so it would be fine. I could call him Rock. But I could also call him Rock. Imagine if I come in one Monday morning, and I see someone hiding behind the wall, just the side of the church. I'm nonchalantly on my way to the office, and Peter emerges with a rock in his hand and throws it at me and hits me on the head. So imagine if I come in the next Sunday and say, right, you know what he did to me? He threw a rock at me. From now on, we're going to call him the Rock. We're going to call him Rock. So you see what I'm trying to say? That one name, that, that noun, that name, rock, could mean two completely different things from my perspective. It's similar with heel. Heel could mean, it could mean the one who trips by the heel, therefore the one who cheats. It could also just be that this twin, uh, Jacob, is grabbing onto Esau's heel. But heel also means, may he protect you know in the way how, how a dog or a sheepdog or a dog stays close to your heel like a rear guard? In the Hebrew language, this name heel can also be related to the name may he protect. So my little subscript, yes, it's helpful, but there's more going on behind the name Jacob. Now these two are going to grow up and we want to find out a bit, a bit more about their characteristics. Look at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob, look at this, was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So two attributes given to these boys as they grow up. We've got Esau who's a skillful hunter, a man of the field. And we've got Jacob who's a quiet man and dwells in tents. Now, from a 21st century perspective, we look at these two lads and we think, well, I want to spend time with Esau. He looks like the macho fun guy. He's the guy who, I, I like him. He's, he's, he's a man's man. He's out there. He's hunting. I want to be around with him. I do not want to be Jacob. He's not even leaving the tents. He's a quiet man. He seems like a little bit of a wet fish. I don't really want to spend time with this guy. I want to be with 
with Esau. He seems like he's more fun. But actually in the first century and in the broader context of Genesis, for Esau to be a hunter, many scholars will say, that actually shows us that he has a predisposition to violence. He has a nature that is perhaps impulsive or impetuous. He's a little bit hot-headed. This whole idea of hunter is often related to somebody who is by nature quite violent. But, but what about Jacob? Because we see right here, we see that Jacob is a quiet man and dwells in tents. Now, at the time this was written, if you dwelled in tents and you came from such a big family, you were going to be someone who was good at management. You are going to be someone who was good at administration. You were going to be someone who had your head screwed on. You were going to be organizing the community. You were going to be a person who was quite intelligent and took responsibility. So he dwells in tents. He's a man of responsibility. But what about being a quiet man? Really interesting. This Hebrew word is the word tam. And every time the word tam is used in the Old Testament in relation to a person, it doesn't mean quiet. Actually, it means blameless. So Job chapter 1, verse 1 of Job. Job is described as blameless. Noah is described as blameless. And in each case, the word tam is used. Now that doesn't mean they're without sin. It doesn't mean they never trip up like we do. It just means they are the kind of person who is righteous and they're noble and they're an example that we can look up to. So Esau's described as a hunter, but Jacob's described as someone who dwells in tents, a good manager, but also someone who is blameless, an example to be looked up to. I don't know about you, but that's kind of blowing my mind with who I thought Jacob actually was. But here's where the plot thickens in verse 28. Let's read this. Starts to get a bit messy in the home now. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, Rebekah loves Jacob because he's blameless. Rebekah loves Jacob because he's, he's, quite a good, he's a good manager and he's got his head screwed on. He's just an all-round nice guy. It doesn't say that Rebecca loves Jacob because he offers her something. No, it just says Rebecca loves Jacob. The toxic relationship going on right here is the first one mentioned. Isaac loved Esau. Why? Because Esau was just a lovable character. Did Isaac love Esau just because he was Esau and he was his dad and he loved him unconditionally? Does it say that? No. Isaac loved Esau. Why? Because he ate of his game. I think what verse 28 is trying to show us is that there's a kind of love that Esau is receiving that's actually full of conditions. That Esau is only loved by his dad because Esau offers his dad something. This is what we call favoritism. I'm going to throw up a little definition on the screen. Favoritism means our communication with, our giving to, and our regard for other people is based upon what they offer us. Verse 28 seems to be giving us a window into the complexities of this household. And what we find is that Esau is receiving a love from his dad that is conditioned upon what he can offer his dad. Dad loves me, but only because of what I can give him. Can you imagine the pressure that's on Esau's shoulders? If he gets it right, his dad loves him, but Esau's exhausted. If he gets it wrong, he's a failure and he feels worthless. There's a toxic relationship emerging in this household. 
But let's do lights, camera, action. We're about to see where this leads. Let's see what this actually does to Esau. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. So that's his his other name which we know means red. Jacob said, verse 31, sell me your birthright now. That's his share of the inheritance. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me, Jacob said. Uh, What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Look at this key summary in verse 34. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now we might look at that and be like, see, isn't Jacob a little bit deceptive right there? Isn't he being manipulative with his brother and stealing his share of the dad's inheritance? No, I don't think so. Because what's already gone on in this passage is that God had spoken and said, you know who I'm going to work through? I'm going to work through the younger here. I think Jacob is honoring what God has already said. And we're going to find out more as we go through the life of Jacob. But the focus of this scenario seems to be on Esau's reaction. What does Esau do? He comes in very dramatically and says, I'm exhausted. I'm about to die. Now, that's not because he's had a three-day journey without food or water. He's been out in the field like he normally does. But he comes in ultra-dramatically, I'm about to die, give me something to eat, and I'm going to sell my birthright for it. The birthright is sold, he gets his food, and then he despises the birthright. You see, what I'm saying here is that Esau comes in and he's acting like a spoiled kid. He's acting like a kid who's been under pressure most of his life. You know how a spoiled kid acts? They're impulsive, they're impetuous, don't have a concept of delayed gratification. It's just, I want it now, I must have it now, nothing's going to get in my way. There's a sense of entitlement, there's a sense of, I am not going to wait to be gratified right here. I need this. What does Esau do? He comes in and says, I need this right now, I'm about to die. But then the summary, and that is key, and it's telling, it's an evaluation. Esau despises his birthright. What's dad going to give me? I don't need this anymore. I don't want want anything to do with what dad has to give me. You see, what we have going on right here in this first scene in the life of Jacob, well, it isn't actually about Jacob. It's about Esau, and it's about Isaac. And what we have in verse 28 is this statement of favoritism, that he is loved by his dad because of what he can offer. And the story finishes with Esau embittered at what his dad was going to give him when he died. Favoritism seems to be collapsing this family. So what's the big deal with favoritism, we asked at the beginning? Why is it so bad? Well, we've seen right here, favoritism hurts people. Favoritism hurts families. Favoritism hurts relationships. Favoritism corrupts. Favoritism is toxic. Favoritism says, I will give you my affection, my love, my attention, my gifts, my regard. I'll communicate with you based on what you can offer me. That hurts people. And what we see right here, we've got Isaac blinded to what God is doing in his family. The favoritism causes Isaac to miss God's work. 
And the favoritism in the family crushes Esau to the point where he doesn't seem to want anything to do with his dad's legacy. So how do we bring this down to earth where we are in our 21st century context? How does a story that seems so far removed from where we are, how do we bring this down to earth? Well, I want to do that in two ways. Favoritism, number one, crushes people. Number two, favoritism causes us to miss God's work. The first one's Esau. That's what we're learning. He gets crushed by the favoritism. Second one, that's Isaac. He misses God's work in his family. How does favoritism crush people? Well, maybe you've experienced it. Maybe there's a few people in here this morning who've been, been the recipient of favoritism, where you've had a parent or somebody in your life who's lifted you up on a pedestal. You are the number one in their life. But what they've also done in doing that is they've placed an incredible weight of expectation on you. That they've said to you, right, I love you and I'll keep loving you, but to make me happy and satisfied, you better get those grades at school. And to have my affection, my attention, you better make sure you maintain that image. I don't want you looking like them. And, and, and as you grow up, you better, you better flog yourself so hard at work that you can have that house that I want you to have and drive that car that I think you should be driving. Well, what happens when we receive that? Well, if we get it right, we're persistently and constantly exhausted and disillusioned. And when we get it wrong, we feel like a failure and our value has been brought into question. Maybe there's some of us in here this morning that know what, it, know what it feels like to stand in Esau's shoes and get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm finished with these expectations. I'm finished with trying to live a life that satisfies you. I'm fed up with being guided my whole life by your words and your opinions about me. You see, favoritism will crush. But also, we can all stand here and hold our hands up and say, we know what it's like to give favoritism. Not just receive it, but give it. Because we know what it's like to say, I'm going to have those people round on Sunday afternoon. Because I know what they can give me. We, we know that subconscious thinking that says, I know I can get something from them. I know they make me feel good. They will offer me praise and encouragement. They'll give me the affirmation and approval that I need. Or maybe in the future, I can get something from them. If I show them my love and attention, if I, if I hold them in high regard and if I give to them, I know I'm going to get something from it. Maybe my popularity, maybe they'll make me feel good, or maybe I'll get something in the future. I'm going to show them my love because I think I can get something from it. But you know when that happens, we become so blinkered by those people that we then miss everyone around us who needs us who needs our hospitality, who needs our giving, who needs our time, who needs our space, who need our affirmation and encouragement. Favoritism can crush other people when we're the ones who are giving it. But what about Isaac? Because Isaac misses God's work. Well, the same is true there. When we are fixated in our favoritism with what other people can offer us, what happens? Other people get missed. And often when we are showing favoritism, we're so locked in on someone or what we can get, we end up missing what God is doing in the lives of people around us. We know what that feels like. We know what it feels like to be so surprised by what God is doing in someone's life because we've just got honed in on someone. I'm not saying we don't have friends. I'm not saying we don't spend time with people who build us up and show us more of Christ. That, that's great. But not at the expense of excluding others. 
Now, if you're anything like me, you can put your hands up and say, oh, I know what it's like to be Esau. I know what it's like to be Isaac. I see favoritism here. Way too often, my relationships are guided by what I think I can get. What do I do with that? Can I be set free from this? What does the passage say about that? Well, I think the clue is at the end of what the Lord says to Rebecca. The older shall serve the younger. Well, what's that got to mean? Well, God's saying, I work differently. I don't operate like you do. I don't go about looking at what human beings have to offer me, and then I'll lavish them with my love and my affection. God doesn't say, right, let me see you. Offer me something. Make me happy. Make me satisfied. Make me pleased with you, and then I'll love you. What do we read in the Bible? What do we see through the life of Jesus Christ? We see a God who's revealed himself to be a God who says, no, 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 my affection for you and my lavish love over your entire life is not grounded upon what you can offer. It's not grounded upon how well you can do this life. It's not grounded upon what you can offer me. No, what do we find in the life of Christ? We have a God revealed that says, I love you. Because I'm a God who loves, not because of what you offer me. That knowledge of that kind of a God, the experience of that kind of God, will bit by bit chip away at our favoritism. Because as soon as we see how our God loves us, isn't grounded upon what we offer him, that infiltrates the way we relate with others. And it begins to break apart piece by piece some of the favoritism we exhibit. We have a God whose communication with us, whose giving to us, whose regard for us, is not grounded upon what we offer him. It's grounded upon the God that he really is. Hey, let's pray and then we get to sing our last song together. Lord, we're grateful for your word, how it speaks into our lives. We confess way too often we engage in relationships with those around us because of what they offer us. But we see through this story that you don't work like that. You're a God who lavishes love, has affection for, communicates with, gives to people like us, not because of what we offer, but because you're a God who loves us. So help us to see that. Help us to experience it. And help us to live it out. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.